Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, so we are diving into Hebrews chapter 3 today, and this is going to be a lot of fun. We're finally out, we're finally out of chapters 1 and 2. I'm sure many of you were wondering when that was going to happen. But we made it. We made it to chapter 3. So we're in chapter 3. We're going to take six verses today, which will be good. And it's all about how... Remember, the Holy Spirit's been building this case on how Jesus is better than the angels, and now he's moved to Jesus being a better deliverer than Moses. And so we've moved from chapters 1 and 2 of laying that foundation to now Now the Lord is taking on one of the, the most highly esteemed and venerated men in Jewish history, Moses himself. And so today we're going to start out at slide 8, just by the way. We're going to skip over some, because I do have... A lot of notes here. Uh, someone called me out in the foyer for it. That will remain anonymous. It was not. It was not Amy. I promise. It was not Amy. But we're going to start at slide eight. So in chapters one and two, again, the Holy Spirit was building that whole case that because Jesus became a man, he tasted death for everyone, and is crowned with glory and honor. He is better than the angels. And so now we're turning the page to taking on Moses and how Jesus is superior to Moses in what regard. So again, remember the three main pillars of Judaism, the angels, Moses, and the Levitical priesthood. And it's really not just Moses. He's going to take on Joshua and Aaron, and the Holy Spirit's going to not attack, but prove out why Jesus is better than some of the most highly venerated men in the Old Testament in Jewish history. So it's going to be incredible. And again, it's not just Moses, but he's going, to, he's going to take on some of the others here soon. So the name of Moses, it actually shows up 848 times in the Bible, in the King James Bible, in 784 verses. And I meant to check, but if I, if I remember correctly, the name of Moses shows up only second to Jesus in the entire Bible. So just as a side note, that's how much the Lord has to say about this man that delivered Israel from Egypt and led them through the wilderness. Surprisingly, his name shows up 38 times in the Gospels. So you think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you don't really think of Moses, right? But Moses is there 38 times in the Gospels. His name appears 19 times in the book of Acts alone, which is all about the church. Now that's incredible. So the church is being formed, and they're still pointing back to this man, Moses, in that book. He shows up 23 times in the rest of the New Testament, including 11 times here in the book of Hebrews. So the New Testament has a lot to say about this man that the Lord used in a mighty way. The Lord held Moses in very high esteem, and you start to see this early, very early in the Old Testament. You see this, and then it really stands out when anyone starts to speak ill of him. And you'll notice anyone that is anointed by God, when someone starts to speak ill of them, the Lord does not 
he does not take that lightly. He corrects them very quickly. And so look at Numbers chapter 12 here. If you remember Miriam and Aaron, they start to murmur against Moses in Numbers 12. In verse 1, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. As a side note, I don't know if I put this in the notes, I don't remember, but as a side note, there's a lot of historical texts that say that Moses was actually, before the Exodus event, he was a very astute general for Pharaoh and led military campaigns against Ethiopia, which is pretty incredible. There were some wars that went on in northern Africa that they're not recorded in the Bible necessarily, but you can find them in some historical texts. So that may have been where he met this Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. So here they are saying, Hey, the Lord's not only just using Moses, he's using us also. He should be using us. We should have as much esteem and be glorified like Moses. Now, the man Moses was very meek or humble above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. That phrase in verse 7 is going to be really important here in Hebrews 3. In all mine house. Remember that phrase in Numbers 12, 7. With him I will, will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall, be, shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? In other words, I speak with Moses mouth to mouth, face to face. I'm speaking to him. Why do you feel the, the right and that you have the privilege to speak against him? You, know, you can see the Lord correcting Aaron, Aaron and Miriam right here. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and beheld, behold, she was leprous. So that holy event in Numbers 12 it's a great proof text of why you should not speak ill of God's anointed. One of the reasons. God holds it in a very high esteem. You see this with David and Saul. Remember, David had the men killed that spoke ill of Saul and that tried to kill, and the ones that killed him eventually. David had them killed because they touched the hair of God's anointed. Now, so you've got to be careful speaking ill of others. And, and I wrote at the bottom here, attack the, skin, the sin, use truth against false teaching, but just be cautious of speaking out against those anointed by the Lord. And part of the question is, how do you know if they're anointed? That's a great question. Ask the Holy Spirit. But if you see something wrong in a brother or sister, pray for them first. Go and pray for them. And not just pray for them, but you can show them truth in love right, from the word of God. You can say, hey, I see that you're getting wrapped up in this or you're teaching this or you're be believing in this. Here's what God's word has to say about that. Let's all go back to the truth of his word and his word only. 
So Moses is the only figure in the Bible whom God personally buries after he dies. Think about that. God took it upon himself to bury the body of Moses. Now that is a kind of a weird thing when you read about it in in Deuteronomy. When you see that, you think, why in the world is God burying the body of Moses? And we're we're gonna track that down here in just a minute. But he keeps his burial spot secret So he was 120 years old. He served the Lord, and frankly, he blew his inheritance for striking the rock in the wilderness twice. And again, this book is all about inheritance. And remember Moses, the children of Israel were thirsty. They came to him. They said, what have you done? Have you just brought us out of Egypt to kill us here in the desert? We have no water. And so Moses talks to God. God says, go strike the rock. And all that water came pouring out, remember, and they were athirst, and then they were cleansed, and they were refreshed and hydrated. And what that was doing was representing the first coming of Jesus, that the rock should be struck, and then the outpouring of the living water, the Holy Spirit. The second time they come to him, and the same thing happens, and God then says, okay, speak to the rock. Don't strike it again. But Moses is so frustrated. He's so sick of these people that are murmuring against him and complaining constantly in the wilderness wanderings that he gets frustrated and he strikes the rock a second time. And remember, God says, that's not what I told you to do. I told you to speak. See, if he would have spoken and the, word, and the water came out, then it would, have mo- it would have modeled the second coming of Jesus, where Jesus returns and speaks the word. But instead, he got frustrated and he struck it. And so God puts him in a penalty box and says, hey, you're going to see the promised land, but you'll never step foot in it to inherit it. And of course, he does step foot in it later, obviously in the Mount Transfiguration and, on, and beyond, but he lost his inheritance. He blew it. He blew it because he didn't listen to the Lord. And it's there as a model for us. But look at Deuteronomy 34, 4. And the Lord said unto him, this is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying... I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor, but no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural force abated. In other words, he was an old man, but he could see fine. He was physically strong. He could run still. He could, he was a, his age did not show in his physical appearance, which is an amazing testament from the Lord also. So why did God personally bury and hide Moses' body? It's, a, it's an interesting question. And when you get, you get a hint of this in Jude, you fast forward all the way to the book of Jude in chapter 1, verse 9, and there's this, a detail that the Holy Spirit tucks into Jude, that if you're not paying attention, you can almost just miss right over it. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. So, okay, back to the speaking ill of dignitaries. Jude, the Holy Spirit in Jude is using the most, the craziest example to even prove that point that Michael is battling Satan and does not bring a railing accusation against him, but instead says, the Lord rebuke you. And that's the model for spiritual warfare. You let the Lord take care of it. 
let him handle it. Just take it to him. So you get this hint here. Michael is fighting with Satan about the body of Moses. And you read that and you think, what in the world is going on here? I do not remember anywhere in the Old Testament that Michael and Satan were fighting over the body of Moses, but it's here. The Holy Spirit takes us away to help us uncover something really important. And bless you. And we talked about not speaking evil of dignitaries, but as you would think in our society that you could just kind of say whatever you want against anyone. It's totally accepted these days. But just take that to heart with the Lord on you've got to be, your, your tongue has the power of life and death from the book of James. So take it serious. But look at that. Despite the adversary Michael's fighting, he does, he does not bring that really an accusation against him, but recognize, recognizes that the victory is with Jesus. And here you have two mighty angels in a real physical war over the body of of a human. So Michael did not yield to the temptation to bring this railing accusation against Satan. Remember in Revelation 12:10, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. That's Satan's job. He is an accuser of you and I and of your brothers and sisters in Jesus constantly. That is what he is. And you're not to participate in that game of accusations. You should have a a tongue and a, a speech seasoned with love. But again, accusations, they they seem to be really prevalent in the body of Christ today. But when you look at the so why are they fighting over the body of Moses here, Michael and Satan? So the tribulation period chronicled from Revelation chapters 6 through 19, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. And the, again, the focus is on Israel. We went through that a lot in the book of Revelation. So Jeremiah 30 verse 7, Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Okay, again, the focus is on Israel. The plan of Satan right now is to destroy Israel so they cannot petition Jesus to return from Hosea 5.15. So Michael stands to fight for Israel in that time. Look at those two verses, Daniel 12.1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of the people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. For at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. In Revelation 12, 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And so this whole, you have Michael and Satan fighting during this time of tribulation, this seven-year period, and the, the focus is totally 100% on Israel. It is the time of Jacob's trouble and if you missed our study through Revelation, you could go back and look at that. But chapter 4, verse 1, the church is removed in the rapture from 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 Thessalonians 4, etc. Chapters 4 and 5 are the throne room of the universe where the 24 elders are with Jesus, crowned. They represent the church. They tell you who they are. And then Jesus takes the scroll and starts to loose the seals thereof, ushering in this final seven-year period of man. 
So then why is Satan trying to get the body of Moses, and why does God not want him to have it? You know, when you think about that, he doesn't want him to take possession. And as we looked, there are 848 references to Moses, but only one reference in the entire Bible to his body that's, that is being buried. And that's Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6, we looked at a minute ago. So God buried the body of Moses, and not on the mountain, but in the valley. You would think about that. That's going to be important in a minute. Deuteronomy 34, 7 through 8 and Moses was 120 years old when he died. His, eyes was not, his eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. And the children of Israel wept, in, wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. So Moses was so loved, they wept for him for a month. They wept for him for an entire month. Not an hour at a funeral, but a month they wept for him. That's how much these people loved Moses. If you remember... Moses asked the Lord, the Lord wanted to wipe out all the Israelites. Remember, he said, hey, they are so stiff-necked and hard-hearted. Just let me wipe them out, and I'll start over with you. And Moses said, please forgive them, and if you will not, then blot me out of your book. You know, Moses loved those people so much, he was willing to give up his salvation if he could. He was willing to do that. But God wouldn't let him, obviously, because you can't lose your salvation. So, he, he thankfully did not take Moses up on his offer and instead had a different plan. But according to, according to Jewish traditions, the grave of Moses was given into special custody of Michael. And they even speak of this contest about Moses' soul at the time of his burial. And so you get this hint in Jude chapter 1, verse 9. When you look at this, there are two Jewish ministries in the Old Testament that were totally incomplete. Remember, Enoch was translated or raptured in Genesis 5, but he was not Jewish. The Jewish lineage and the family didn't start until Abraham. So Enoch was not Jewish. Just keep that in mind. Neither was Noah, but he was offering sacrifices on the ark. You could think about that one for a while. But two, two Jewish ministries were incomplete. They were Moses and Elijah. And the Jews at the opening of the New Testament were expecting three people to show up on the scene. They asked John the Baptist if he was Moses, Elijah, or the Christ. In John 1, verse 19 through 21, and this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elijah? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. So they ask him for three people. Why are they looking for Elijah? Well, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, when you, when you look into Jewish, Jewish customs today, Genuine Jewish families that celebrate Passover always leave a chair, an empty chair at their table for Elijah from this verse, from Malachi chapter 4, because they are expecting him to show up at any moment. And I think that's really interesting. But we do know that Elijah, according to the word of God, will return before the day of the Lord, before Jesus steps foot back on earth. Now, that's interesting. That prophet in John 1, 19 through 21 refers to Moses and you can track that down in Deuteronomy 18. So they asked about Jesus, 
Elijah and that prophet or Moses. So they're looking for, how are the Jewish people looking for those three people to come back? That's incredible. So obviously we know they're looking for the Christ, but it was the ruling one, not the suffering servant. They missed it because they were expecting them to rule the world with Jesus. And here he comes saying, I've got to die first. And they're going, what are you talking about? You're a, you're a liar and we're going to crucify you. They were expecting to rule and reign. They wanted the line of the tribe of Judah, not the Lamb of God. And so they missed it. And it's interesting that if they had received Jesus the first time, John the Baptist would have been Elijah. And they would have ushered in the kingdom. That's in Matthew eleven fourteen. And if ye will receive it, this is Jesus speaking, this is Elijah, which was for to, for to come. But they blew it, and so it wasn't Elijah. They had to, he had to send John the Baptist instead. But they rejected Jesus, and so John the Baptist was sent in the spirit of Elijah from Matthew 17. And his disciples asked him, saying, When they say, the scribes, that, that Elijah must come first, and Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall come first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah has come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. See, John was the forerunner. Remember from Isaiah, he was prophesied, one crying in the wilderness, uh, declaring and paving the way for the Lord. So John the Baptist was the forerunner. But if they had accepted Jesus... The kingdom would have been ushered in, and the church would have never been formed, which is an amazing, it's one of the greatest miracles in the Bible that the Jews missed it, because you and I are the benefactors of a relationship with God that would have never been otherwise. And it's incredible that God knew this whole time, I'm going to call out a people out of every nation, tongue, race, ethnicity, you name it, from the face of the globe, there will be a true bride and a true people to me. And I'm going to impart my spirit on them, and they're going to do miracles beyond anything they could imagine. And it's going to be called the Ecclesia, the called out ones, the church. And it's just incredible that that whole plan of God, how it played out. So Moses' ministry finished in Numbers 27 through 12. I mentioned that earlier, for striking the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And thus his role was handed off to Joshua in Deuteronomy 3, he then saw the promised land from a distance, but only east of the Jordan. So Elijah's ministry, on the other hand, ends in 1 Kings 19. So look at this first, the opening verse. We won't read all these, but let's look at the couple of first verses. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the, in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What, does, what doest thou here, Elijah? So this is God asking, what are you doing here? Why are you in this cave weeping and sorrowful and wrapping this mantle around your face? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In other words, God, I'm the only one standing up for you. There's nobody else left in all of Israel. Poor, pitiful me. You know, I'm the only one out here fighting for you. 
And God rebukes him and basically says, hey, I've got still 7,000 people in Jerusalem that won't, won't bow a knee to Baal. What are you talking about? You're the only one. And from that day forward, his ministry was ended because he got prideful. Pride set in to Elijah, and he thought that he was the only one still walking with the king. Meanwhile, God's saying, there are thousands of you left. What are you doing in this cave? I need you to go be a prophet for, for me and my kingdom. Instead, you're sitting in this cave, you know, on a pity party. So God takes, God takes him in 2 Kings 2 up into the whirlwind, if you remember that. So these two ministries, they'll, this is not something to be dogmatic about at all. This is just me looking at the scriptures and telling you what I see out of it. So again, Acts 17, 11 totally applies. You guys have to take this to God. But in Revelation 11, there are two witnesses that have a ministry, a very unique ministry. Revelation 11, 3, and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. So the ba- there's a three-and-a-half-year period within that seven-year period of which these two witnesses do these incredible miracles on the earth. Now, don't get confused either and assume that it has to be the first three-and-a-half years or the second three-and-a-half years. It doesn't say that. It just says it's three and a half years, 1,260 days. So it could slide anywhere within that seven-year period. But look at their attributes in Revelation 11, 5, and 6. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. They have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So you've got four attributes of these two witnesses. Fire from heaven and shut heaven from raining is what Elijah did. If you remember from 1 Kings 18 and 2 Kings 1, shutting heaven from raining is in 1 Kings 17, but you don't know that it was Elijah until you get to James and Luke in the New Testament, and then you find out who, who did it, that Elijah is the one that called for it. Moses, he turned water to blood, obviously, one of his most famous plagues in Exodus 7, and then all manner of plagues from Exodus 8 through 12. So you have these four attributes that both the guys in the Old Testament were unique to their time, and both of them have ministries incomplete. Both of them seem to be prophesied by the Jews that they are looking for them both to return. And this really could be why Satan wanted the body of Moses all the way back when he died in Deuteronomy. So this could be it, because Satan had somehow in his counsel, he knew that God's going to use him again in the future, and Satan wanted to corrupt or counterfeit that purpose. So that's really interesting. And their second ministry is overcome by the Antichrist in Revelation 11, verse 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome or nikeo, nikeo them and kill them. Nikeo means to conquer, to carry off the victory, come off victorious. But look what Jesus says of the church in Matthew 16. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven... And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, now Jesus is pointing to himself here. He's not pointing to Peter. Upon this rock, 
He's saying this rock and pointing to himself. He's the rock all through the Bible. He is it. I will build my church. The church is built on Jesus. It's not built on Peter. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So look what Jesus is saying. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But in Revelation 11, the gates of hell are prevailing against these two witnesses. So that's one key of how you know the two witnesses are not a part of the church. Because hell is not going to conquer the church. The church is going to be removed before hell is unleashed on the earth. That word in the Greek is to be strong to another's determinate, to prevail against, to be superior in strength, and to overcome. So again, those two witnesses, they can't be a part of the church. Moses and Elijah later show up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, which I've always found this interesting. Moses was buried near the foot of Mount Pisgah in Deuteronomy 34.1, so at the valley again. Elijah was taken up by the whirlwind in the valley at the same foot of the mountain. So you have where Moses was buried is the same spot, the same area, I should say, as where Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind. So there's something unique about that location. It could be the same point where the transfiguration occurred, but it doesn't quite say. And we could go down a whole rabbit trail on that. Not only did Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus, but they were discussing the king's return, his return to the earth. So when you look at Matthew 16, Matthew 17, 1 through 5, Luke 9, 30, 1 Peter 1, and 2 Peter 1, 15 through 18, go look at those verses. You'll see that the three of them are discussing the return of the king. And so Moses has, he's, it's almost like he's a part of a meeting with Jesus talking about, okay, you're going to go left, I'm going to go right, and then we're going to right, then we attack, and then I'll wait for your signal. And thank you, Mason, for the courtesy laugh. So, so with all of that background about Moses, okay, we'll get to verse 1 here. Chapter 3, verse 1. So wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So notice that the Holy Spirit's writing again to holy brethren. We've talked about that a lot, how this book is written to the believer. This is your book to, over, to be an overcomer a metakoi, as we're going to look at in a second. The heavenly calling on you brings with it a heavenly inheritance. So don't lose sight of that. Because you have a godly calling, God has a godly inheritance waiting for you. And I cannot stress this enough, that time is short. Life is short. Life is really short. I was talking to my wife this weekend, and I, I realized with, my, with our children, our three kids, we're going to have a 26-year span of them in the household, and we're exactly halfway through it. And that blew my mind. I was sitting there thinking about that. Of we've had thir- We're halfway through until all of our kids leave the house, and we're going to blink, and it's going to be totally gone. And then, who knows, maybe the rapture will happen before that. But it's just amazing when you really, it's what Proverbs and Psalms says, remember to redeem the time. So count your weekends. You know, I love the way that uh, Chuck Missler put it a decade ago. If you counted 52 weekends a year and you had, what, 30 years left, you've got, what, 1,500 weekends or so? Yeah, just think about that. And what are you doing with it? 
How are you serving the king? What are you doing to further his cause and walk into a place with him that you are not ashamed and going into that place and sitting with the king for eternity where there is no more time. It's just incredible. So the Greek word here for partakers, holy brethren, partakers, it's, it's metakoi. And it means one sharing in, partaking, or a partner in work or in dignity. So think about that. Jesus is calling you and wants you to be a partner with him in what you're doing, in what he's doing. It's probably the most important business venture you could ever step foot in, is this joint venture with the king. It's a partnership. And this word is used six times in the Greek New Testament, and five of those times are in Hebrews. Again, no surprise, because this whole book is about being the metakoi, a partaker and pressing on. The other place is Luke 5, verse 7, and they beckoned unto their partners, their partners. It's used there as partner instead of partaker. The verse is also the only place the Bible calls Jesus an apostle. So think about that. You don't often think of Jesus as an apostle here in verse 1, but he's an apostle to all of mankind. Remember, every disciple and apostle had a ministry. Uh, Paul really wanted his ministry to be to the Jews, but he, he got, I'm sorry, the Gentiles, he got the Gentiles, Peter got the Jews, and Peter wanted the opposite. But every one of those guys had a, a group of people they were sent to. Jesus is the only one that's sent to all of them. He's the only one that is the apostle sent to all of mankind. And the Greek word for apostle, it simply means a delicate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders, or a sent one. So think about that. Jesus was sent by the Father in John 3, 34. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. In John 5, 36. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me. The Father hath sent me. So Jesus is claiming to be an apostle, a sent one. In Hebrews 3, 1, we see that Jesus is also our high priest. And when you think about this, a prophet is God's representative to the people. And a priest is the people's representative to God. That's how it was in the Old Testament. The, the difference was the direction and communication, right? The prophet spoke from God to the people. The priest spoke from the people back to God. And so the whole tribe of Levi, that's why God called them out to be priests. You had Judah's tribe to be the kings, and then the prophets were kind of a mixed bag. But a prophet has a unique role. A priest has a unique role. And Jesus was the epitome. He is the epitome of both of those roles. He is the ultimate prophet, and he is the ultimate high priest. And from God to the people or from the people to God, just keep that in mind. That's why you only need to confess to Jesus if you've got something going on in your life. 1 Timothy 2.5, if you have any sin that's besetting you, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So he is your mediator, your high priest. You should go to the throne room and confess to him and him alone. You don't need to go to an earthly priest 
and sit in a box somewhere and confess something. It's not biblical. You might have something on your heart you need to share with someone. You might have something you need to seek reconciliation for, but you don't go confess to someone seeking forgiveness of your sin. They can forgive you in an earthly way. God is the only one that can forgive you for all eternity in a heavenly way. So in verse 2, who is faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all his house. So Moses was faithful in presenting God's word to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember, he never withheld God's word from Pharaoh or the Egyptians. In fact, a lot of Egyptians got saved in the Exodus event because Moses preached the word to them. So there were both Jew and Gentile in homes when the Passover happened. And there was a, there's a whole issue there on how they commingled then afterwards coming out of the wilderness. But he did have, remember, he was, he was human, so he did have some reservations. When God called him to go speak, he had a lot of hesitation and wanted Aaron to speak in his stead. Remember, he said, I'm slow of speech. I can't even get in front of a crowd. What am I, why are you calling me to do this? And <laughs> that, that, whole, that whole issue is just hilarious to me. But God is not going to call you to do something that you're not equipped to do. So if God has a call on your life, step into it and don't say, hey, could I, get, could I just get someone to do this beside me? Or I, could I get, maybe Mason could be up here and just talk for me a lot, you know, if, you're, if I felt uncomfortable. It just, you've, once you step into it too, the first place the enemy is going to attack you is in your anointing. So he will try to lie to you and tell you, you're not equipped for that. What are you doing? You can't sing. You can't talk. You can't study the word of God and share this with people. You can't go out and serve the community and lay hands on someone and get heal- see healings. And the enemy will try to attack the very anointing that God has placed on your life. So be aware of that, right? As we continue on this path of battling against the enemy, and as the target gets bigger, You've got to keep that in mind, that you have an anointing on you as a servant of the king. And nobody in this room knows what it is necessarily except God until you step into it. And once you step into it, the enemy is going to try everything possible to convince you to back out of it. So just keep that in mind and pray about that. But Moses was faithful in keeping every detail showed to him on the Mount for the Tabernacle Blueprints. Remember, he built it accordingly. And as the ghostwriter of the Torah, Moses was, he was a very diligent man. He also was an esteemed general. I mentioned that at the beginning. There were, there were of course, times where he became really impatient. But look at verse 3. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So this man, speaking of Jesus, who at this point had come, died, and was raised again, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. So you, you, you could kind of look at this of two different ways, of the house being Israel or the house referencing the tabernacle where Israel met and worshiped God. Both could be true, but ultimately the house God is talking about here is Israel. He set Moses over Israel, but who built Israel? God. And so he's, the Holy Spirit is using this reversal of the one that built the house has much more honor than the house or the one set over the house. So if you have something in your life that you're set over, 
Be sure you continuously recognize who built it and set you over it. It's God. It's not your hands. It's not the work of your talent. It's not your pressing in harder and working harder than anyone else around you. All of that may be factors of what God called you to do and how he empowered you to do it. But just keep in mind that he gave you those talents, that he opened that door for you, that he allowed you the opportunity to walk through it. So give him the praise for it. So when you look at Hebrews 8.5, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. So you don't you kind of miss that in, in the Old Testament. What, but when Moses went up to Mount to Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord, and he got what we call the Ten Commandments, he also got the blueprints for the tabernacle. He got all the deta- the details of the tabernacle on the mountain there. So the builder has more glory than the occupant or the creation itself. So in verse 4, For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And who specifically? You can find actually creation attributed to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. And so it's, a tri- it's the triune head of God. But Colossians 1.16, speaking of Jesus, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. That's pretty incredible. Thrones, there's those ranks of angels again. Thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. In verse 5, And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after when I read that verse over and over, it just really hit me. Wouldn't you want God to have that same record of you? At the end of it all, wouldn't you want God to write one simple sentence of you that you were faithful in all your house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after? At the end of it all, for God to say you are faithful in all your house, that would be an incredible testimony to leave behind and to walk into, into glory with him for all eternity. And that's the key here in Hebrews, is finishing strong. So remaining faithful in all of our house, whatever God has set you over, be faithful in it. Be faithful in it. And that's not just jobs. That's families. That's kids. That's your household. You need to be faithful in your own house, in your household, to lead your family the way God would have you lead your family. But Christ as a son over his own house, this is the last verse for today in Hebrews 3 here, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, look at this. There are three houses mentioned seven times. The house of Israel, who were a redeemed people from Exodus 14 and 15. Household of God or the family of God and the house of God as the spirit indwelling you. So three different houses are mentioned in these six verses, and they're mentioned seven different times. House, 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 house. (laughs) God has a lot to say about being a steward over a house that he's given you. So the house Christ is over incorporates Israel and the church, and he created both. 
And that's what the Holy Spirit is building on here. So notice the conditional word at the back half of the verse. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Again, you've got to focus on the Father's business. It's finishing strong. It's not about your salvation again. It's about your inheritance and how faithful you will be over the house that God has set you in. Because if you're faithful here, he can then trust you there. Okay, does that make sense? He's not going to... How many of you, if you have someone work for you and you give them a responsibility and they totally blow it and don't want anything to do that you've told them to do, are going to entrust them with more, right? Nobody. You would never do that. And God is saying the exact same thing. If he can trust you with what he's given you, he will give you more. And then he can trust you and he'll give you more. And he lets... He lets that play out little by little so that you can grow in your relationship with him. But focus on the Father's work, just like Jesus, John 9, 4. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. And the same is true for you and I. There, the night is coming at the rapture or when we go home that you can't improve that report card anymore. You can no longer, you know, check the box and say, Lord, I did this, I did this, I did this. That's why it's so critical that you live for him now and have a sense of urgency to be in his word and live for him. So look at, look at Moses and Jesus. I love this kind of side-by-side -side comparison. Moses was an apostle. Jesus is the apostle of all mankind. Moses, a member of a house built. Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses was an individual in a single house, which was Israel. Jesus is the maker of all the houses. Moses was simply a man. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Moses, a faithful servant. Jesus, a faithful son. Moses wrote of Jesus. When you read John 5, 46, Jesus says, Surely you would have, if you would have believed what Moses wrote, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And, and that's a incredible study. It's one of the verses that 10 years ago got me completely sold out on trying to read the Bible and find Jesus on every page. Because when you read that, when you read Psalms 40 verse 7, and then the volume of the book, it's written of me, and you start going through this book verse by verse, and you find that every single line points to Jesus, points to one man, then it just makes it come alive. And you will never read it the same You'll never read the same after that. But Moses wrote of Jesus, and Jesus is the substance of all we hope for that was written aforetime, from Romans 15, 4. Moses, a man of God, Jesus, God himself. Moses, a prophet of God's truth. Jesus is the embodiment of God's truth. Moses was a king in Jeshunan, in Deuteronomy 33. Jesus is the king of kings. Moses delivered Israel from bondage. Jesus delivered all of man from bondage, not just Israel, all of mankind. Moses built the earthly tabernacle. Jesus modeled the tabernacle because everything in it speaks of him, and it's based on the heavenly reality that he built in heaven from Hebrews 8. Moses followed Jesus in the wilderness, and Jesus led all of Israel through the wilderness. He was it. Moses, or Jesus then was the one that fought at Jericho in Joshua 5 when Moses was taken out of the game. And look at the bottom there. The ruling king 
in both instances, tried to kill both Jesus and Moses, Pharaoh and Herod. Both of them had a decree to kill the, all the newborn babies right at birth. And so there's, there's a, you could go down, I think there's a list of probably 100 plus ways in which Moses is a foreshadowing of Jesus in a lot of unique ways. So with all of that said, a couple things. The, uh, the world is, continues just to get crazy and crazier and crazier, and the war continues, and there's a lot of misinformation out there in the world. There's a lot of, a lot, Satan is trying desperately to get you to see things certain ways and to bow a knee to him. And so again, I just cannot stress this enough every week that if you are not in the word of God daily, then you are, you are missing out. You're missing out on a relationship with the king and you're missing out on really seeing what's going on around you and the setup for it. So get into the word of God. It's going to be, it's going to be paramount in these days ahead and the years ahead or however many months we have left, whatever it is days, months, years, I don't know, but and you've got to put it on the frontlet of the minds and the hearts of your children so that they can go to school and face whatever's being thrown at them from not, and even if they're in a private Christian school, don't be, don't, don't be deceived that they're not going to get stuff thrown at them. It may not just not be from the teachers, but I promise you the kids sitting around them are taking in things that you would not let your kid take in and be a part of. And the enemy, like Chris said here at the beginning, the enemy has a war on the family. He wants to totally destroy the nuclear family, the father, the mother, and the children. If he can break that apart, then he can take down any society on earth. And so you've seen an attack on the family ever since prayer was outlawed from school. The attack has been unbelievable. So. The time is now to get really serious about getting in the Word of God, praying over your families. Get on a plan where just maybe you take 15 minutes in the evening and you sit down with your kids and read. That's it. Just read out loud and ask them, what did you guys think? Because I promise you the Holy Spirit will craft a message for them and will craft and glean something into their heart that they will take with them forever. And you just keep building that and building that and lead them as they should go. So don't be negligent. Don't be negligent about that. Go next slide, Austin, real quick. So as you're in this war fighting for your family and fighting for your spouse, your marriage, your church, everything that's going on in this world, God really laid this on my heart, and I've shared it just a couple times since being back from Colorado, but in Joshua 7, Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except you destroy the accursed from among you. If you're, if you're in this war and you have anything in your life that is accursed that you know God does not want you to have in your life, he will turn his back eventually. Look at that in Joshua 7. I will not be with you anymore because you won't give it over. And it, it kind of reminds me of Samson. Remember Samson? He woke up after he, he cut his hair and gave away the secret to his power. Well, the secret wasn't the hair. The secret was his commitment to God was the hair. And so it was a Nazarite vow. He made a vow to God 
and he had turned back on that vow. It had nothing to do with his hair. It was a sign of his commitment to God. And so he let go of his commitment to the king. And one of the most dangerous dangerous verses in the entire Bible is, for he thought God was with him, but he was not. And remember, his Samson lost all of his strength. He gets shackled. They end up killing him. And then he prays to, to take down the enemy one more time at the very end. And God grants that wish. But search your heart and mind this week and really get serious and look into and ask the Lord. You may have something that you don't even know you need to get rid of, honestly. You may have something that you don't even know you need to get rid of. And ask the Lord, take it to his throne room and just ask him, God, is there something in my life that I need to get rid of? And let him do it. Just let him show that to you. Let him illuminate it. Mark 4, 22, what, what comes into the light, what's in the dark needs to come to the light because if it's in the dark, it stays there and it kind of festers. But when you bring it into the light of God, it gets, it gets taken care of immediately. So do that. Do that. Do that this week. And in Joshua 22, remember, there were two and a half tribes that wanted to stay east of the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. And God... God does not want you to stay east of the Jordan. He wants you to press on to the rest that he has for you in the promised land, west of the Jordan. So keep fighting and pressing and keep running for him. So if you're watching this online, if you're here today, if you, if you don't know the Lord, then you need to get born again. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And it's that simple. And your sin that is crimson is turned to white as snow from Isaiah 118. And after you get born again, you need to get baptized in the Holy Spirit. See, when you get born again, the Holy Spirit baptizes you from Romans in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But then you start to walk in the Spirit of God and you ask the Lord then to baptize you in the Holy Spirit from Acts, where Jesus then baptizes you by fire in the Holy Spirit to do things that you cannot even imagine, to understand the Bible in ways that you didn't even think you could, to lay hands on people, to heal, to speak in tongues, to pray in the Spirit, to cast out demons, to do all those things to glorify Him. So do that and ask the Lord for it. He has a gift he's waiting to anoint you with. So we'll, with that, we'll just close out in prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for this day. God, I thank you so much for your people, Lord, that are all over the world, that are chasing after you. God, we thank you for your people that we get to call brethren, the holy brethren. And we thank you, God, that you have a call on their lives. And Lord, no matter where they are, no matter where they are, God, we are praying protection, we are praying provision over them. We are praying that you would lead them as a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day to separate them from their enemies, to allow them to do your work, the work of the kingdom, to set them free, just press the enemy back for a season longer, Father, to give us and them an opportunity to serve you and to continue serving you before 
that day when we get to meet you in the clouds, God, from 1 Thessalonians 4. We praise you for that day. We thank you for that day. God, we thank you that in John, you promised us that you had to leave so that you could send the comforter. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that the comforter, us as the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, must leave before the King returns. God, it's that same truth applies, and we thank you for that. God, be with all of us here in this place this week ahead, with all of those families that are traveling back today from spring break. God, we just pray that you would protect them as they travel, and that, Lord, you would give a new sense of urgency to each one of us as to what exactly you would have of us in these days ahead, Lord. Teach us and show us and let us walk in complete truth of your word. In Jesus' name, we are praying healing over this room. God, we are praying healing of those watching online. God, heal. Let a spirit of healing go out across your people, a spirit of strength and energy and healing, God, healing of the mind, loosing of the tongue, healing of any ligaments or bones or muscles that are hurt and aching. God, just let your spirit pour out on these people and heal them this day. We love you, God, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.